This is Live Well Talk on Workplace Violence. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Union Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital. Incidents of violence against healthcare workers is on the rise. Join me today to talk about this is Carol Mead, Director of St. Luke's Behavioral Health Services. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Your first Arnold. podcast. My first podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you here. You know, I, I, a New York Times story recently, it, it was about per 1,000 employees, healthcare was about triple the average. It was like 25 violent incidents per 1,000 employees, where the national average is like eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely higher. Um, and previously we had Kelly Prinney, a nurse uh, supervisor from Five Center on with over you know 20 some odd, all close to 30 years experience, maybe a little bit more than that actually. And, and, and what she's seen uh, tell us what you've seen and the trend that you've observed uh, in your capacity as leadership in behavioral health, but also for the hospital. Yeah, I would concur with what Kelly said. We have definitely seen an increase. It was on the rise, I think, pre-COVID. Um, I saw some data somewhere where between, I think, 2010 and 2016, um, the rates of um, workplace violence within a healthcare setting increased by 60% or some, something similar to that. It's not exactly right, I'm sure. But so since then, we know it's increased even more um, since COVID. For whatever reason, throughout this pandemic, it feels like um, we're seeing more um, aggressive incidents from patients and family members. And it's and it's not just here at St. Luke's. It's across the nation, as you said. Yep, it's right. happening everywhere. Um, you know, the why behind it. You know, we could speculate. I don't know that anybody really knows, but it's definitely increasing. And it feels, um, it almost feels to me like people feel like they have permission to not be nice to people for some reason. And that's, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, it's just this degree of lack of civility that previously is present. Um, Of interest, you know, I think part of it, pandemics change society, right? Yes. You know, the Black Plague. Uh, changed history, influenza, Spanish flu, influenza, that changed history. Uh, You know, so it's not unusual for pandemics to influence behavior and change Mm -hmm. history. So I I, I think that's an expectation. But I think that it's multifactorial and it's, I'm, I'm crediting Mike Tyson here, but he made the observation that social media has allow people to say things that's not doesn't result in getting punched in the face right now i'm yeah. i'm paraphrasing but essentially you could True. say something on twitter or whatever and not get punched in the face right. you know so i think it's lowered the tone of civility that mm-hmm. spills out into non social media just yeah. in society and then you take a pandemic that sequestered people in their homes for 2 years a year around here, you know, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're on social media all the time, right? Yes. You know, and so I, I think part of that's accelerated, but it was changing prior. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of it's just we're so blessed with Iowa nice and that changes over time. Just like there, I'm sure at one time there was New York City nice, you know, uh, maybe a long time ago. I don't know. Um, but I, I lose a little sleep where that thing and has has times just changed um, and will it I don't see it going back 
Uh, maybe that's what makes me sad, I think, on some level. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. Um, I think that, that, you know, in the patient care area, we it, it's not unusual historically for the perhaps in a demented patient to strike a staff member that kind of went unreported. Mm-hmm. So I know part of this is we've encouraged appropriately that that should be reported. We should know about that and we should address that. But what has been your experience um, over the years with behavioral health and having an increasingly aggressive or difficult patients? Has that gone up? I think that anecdotally, we would say that it has gone up. We definitely, in the last few years, um, from from real life experiences, have seen um, team members who have been assaulted that have resulted in some pretty significant injuries. So definitely those incidents feels like it's it's increased um, where people are um, being assaulted by patients and you know, having real injuries afterwards that impact their career going forward. Um, we've always had some of that on our units. You know, we're working with some pretty sick people who um, don't always um, fully comprehend the consequences of their behaviors or even, you know, what's going on around them. Um, and in the behavioral health world, we do a really good job, I think, of de-escalating that and managing that behavior um, and have worked really hard over the last couple decades, really, to reduce our use of restraint and seclusion as a result to take care of those patients and have done a fabulous job um, while also balancing the workplace violence incidents and team members getting injured. And so when those breakout situations happen where people get hurt, it I lose sleep over it as well. I bet. It's distressing. I, I think to me, just my peripheral observation, I, I can remember Rick Larson, Dr. Larson said probably 15, 20 years ago, you know, he said that the, the schizophrenic patient may act up, may become boisterous, but seldom do they cause violence. Don't don't be afraid to take care of these patients because they, they seldom, you know, strike people. Um, but then you, you get polysubstance abuse and antisocial yep. behavior. Now, those patients can be dangerous. Yep. I mean, yeah. life-threatening dangerous. Yes. Uh, and I know we've had to have law enforcement's mm-hmm. assistance occasionally Yeah. Uh, in that. What are, you, you mentioned de-escalation. What, what, you know, I know this because I, I know how serious hospital leadership, our CEO, Michelle, Casey Green, Carmen Kinraid, how, how serious they take this. You know, they, they, this is not, this is something I know they lose sleep over. What, what, tell me about how this de-escalation process has been rolled out to the staff. Yeah. So, um, we actually started working on some of, um, this workplace violence prevention right at the beginning of COVID, um, as a, as a system, um, to address how do we, how do we give our team members the tools they need to de-escalate patients and family members. Um, And there was a team that worked really through most of COVID to pull together some really nice training that all direct patient care team members receive. It's a, I don't remember if it's two two or three hour training that everybody gets initially, um, hopefully within their orientation time that talks to them about how to de-escalate patients. A lot of what the focus is, and I think it's surprising for people, is how 
How do we need to handle ourselves rather than necessarily manage that other person? If we're managing our own emotions and our own um, behaviors, that can often de-escalate the situation in itself. Um, every single team member gets a computer-based module as well. So everybody, no matter where you work, does a um, training that gives you some of the basic tools on de-escalation. And then for, for our team members who are in... Um, places where they're probably higher risk, like the emergency department, behavioral health, security. Um, we're in the process of rolling out a new training called MOAB for those folks that will teach them more physical approaches. We used to use a different product called Crisis Prevention Institute, and we're in the process of transitioning. MOAB. Does that MOAB. stand for something? It stands for Management of Aggressive Behavior. And what that will train people is how to physically intervene when we need to, because we know there are times when we have to physically intervene to keep the patient safe and other team members safe and yourself safe. Um, we take that extremely seriously in all of our areas. It's something, unfortunately, we have to do pretty frequently in behavioral health areas and in the emergency department to keep people safe. And so um, if there's a safety risk, we train people how to intervene physically to whether it's use of restraints or seclusion so that we can prevent that workplace violence from occurring. And then also you, uh, under your leadership, we have the BERT call, Behavioral Emergency Response Team. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Kelly had mentioned it when we sat down with Kelly Prinney. Yeah. So, you know, we have a couple of different levels of response when there's agitated or aggressive patients. And, and our BERT team is one of those responses. So if any place in the hospital, somebody feels like someone is starting to become agitated, they're concerned that they might act out aggressively, um, they can call uh, the stat line and have the BERT, a BERT response. Um, typically, people from all three or any one or two of the behavioral health units will respond. It kind of depends on our staffing. Um, behavioral health access team, so our team of behavioral health um, specialists in the emergency department will respond to that, and security also responds to those calls. So the, the goal there is to prevent some aggression from happening. So usually they will call when someone is starting to um, make threatening comments or start to act up a little bit aggressively. And um, then they'll come and often use their expertise of de-escalation sure. and give suggestions to the team on how maybe they can respond differently in the, ne the next time. Sometimes what a person really needs is somebody different stepping in the room and talking to them, just a, a change in face is, is enough to sometimes de-escalate a situation. All of the units utilize that response team. Yeah, it's and, been a, it's, um, I think it's been a really nice I think it has. It. I think there's been a positive response from yes. staff. Uh, I've always been worried that perhaps they should have called a rapid response team medical so that patients having a medical emergency that's mistaken for behavioral health, that just hasn't happened. You know, that was a concern of yes. mine when it started. Yes. And, and that just hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I think it's been used well um, and seldom, if ever, seldom, rare is a BERT transition into a medical emergency. You know, I mean, yeah. that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, the staff have done a great job with it. Yeah, I think that there's some concern. I've I've heard people sometimes say, I, 
I don't know if I should call a BERT. Um, you know, are we at that level yet? And it's sort of like when you call 911, like just call, yeah. right? Let them decide. Let them decide yeah. if you know. if it's um, required that or not. And at least you have the people there to help support you if that's what you need. It, and I, I tell patients that when they think they're in medical emergency, I'd rather send you home from the ER yeah. than have you come in and CPR or something like that. Right. So yes, come see us when you're concerned. We'll decide if it's yep. something important. Yeah. Uh, that's our job, not yours. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. I think that's consistent and positive in the correct advice to give. Now, we've also, uh, and this was this was kind of a, a step in in the right direction that was hesitant, uh, maybe seven, eight years ago when we brought up sort of, but of putting a flag or a label in the medical record that this patient potentially is violent. Um, which gives just patients a heads up, you know, don't back yourself in a corner, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I think we've been really sensitive about not wanting to label people mistakenly, uh, which I completely understand. And that was the trepidation. But just with the increasing incidents, it's, it was the right thing to do. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is something that we were talking about before I became the director. So I'm guessing you're right, seven or eight years yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, and there's been some concern about you know, as you said, labeling people incorrectly. Um, The system and St. Luke's takes this very seriously, though, and there's a group of people who review every single flag that gets put on. um, And sometimes we have to go back and ask more questions because we really are want to make sure we're not putting that flag on inappropriately or um, for a situation that doesn't really need it. But Having that violent patient flag alerts all caregivers, no matter where you are, in what setting, is this person has a history of maybe acting out violently. Not that you should step in the room um, fearful or say we're not going to treat you, but that you are going to step into that patient's room with a sense of um, maybe using some of those de-escalation strategies or safety strategies like you were talking about. Make sure you don't get trapped in a room. You don't, you don't get cornered in a room. You don't have something on you or in that room that could be used as a weapon. Maybe you use a buddy system and you don't go in that room alone. So all of those strategies that we do teach in that de-escalation class, you can bring to the front of your mind as you're going to go in and treat that person. Now, I also noticed the behavioral health staff have a whistle mm-hmm. as well. I have mine you on my do, batch. Yeah. yeah, you're safe in this room. Thank so you. you uh, but but that, I'm guessing you blow that and people come to help. Yeah, you know we've had that whistle concept for many many years. Yeah, it's, um, that's not that new. I mean, no, um, it kind of resurfaces at times. On our inpatient units, we have what's called a pinpoint, and that's a a system that they they there's two levels. They can push a button and internally. Um, it lets people know you need some assistance. Maybe you're down in the day room or in a TV room and you have gotten trapped in, in the room or a patient's starting to act up. You can push that button and people within your unit will come. If you push the other button or, or pull the, there's two different devices, pull the pit apart, you'll get a response from all three behavioral health units and security immediately and people come running. Um, the whistles are, are better used in areas where we don't have that. Um, pinpoint. Um, so our outpatient areas, I've encouraged medical nursing units to use them. They're small, but they're really loud. It's like 
you know, your PE teacher's type whistle. And so if you hear somebody blow that whistle, you're going to go to that whistle and, you know, somebody needs some help. So it's a pretty inexpensive but very um, uh, successful way to call for help. Yeah, I, I think that's that. That's always been there. I mean, I'm always impressed with uh, staff and how they they have each other's back. Mm-hmm. Definitely, know, I mean, they definitely um, work together very quickly in those situations. Yes. Uh, that's always been. And 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 when we talk to Kelly, you know, as I've said, the, the staff, you're not you're not bouncers. Walk away from it. You're not absolutely somebody trying to leave. You know, and she was telling these stories in the old days where they'd like go tackle them, you know, out on First Avenue, trying to get them back in the hospital. You know, just call for assistance, call law enforcement if we need to, but don't. You're not a bouncer. Exactly. I think that many of us have this sort of sense, and, you know, I'm sure it's partly ego of, I should be able to handle this situation. I should be able to do this. And so it's, um, it's an ego thing to ask for help. And if there's one thing I've learned in the last six years, for sure, since I've been the director, is you got to ask for help. And I hope that all newer staff especially, but even our tenured staff say, there are times when I need help and it's going to be safer if we ask for help. We shouldn't be chasing people down First Avenue. Many of us oldsters who've been doing this for a while have similar stories. I remember being told, like my first day of internship, you know, handed the code pager and being told, Hey, if you need something, ask for help, but consider it a sign of weakness. You know, yeah. go at it. You know, that's kind of the old school. Yeah. And I, I yeah, that's medicine's a team sport. And absolutely. you have to approach it like that. And, and we'll all be safer because yeah, of absolutely. it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, also probably a decade ago when we really started encouraging people to report these incidents, you know, do a variance report and now enter it into an RL. There was hesitance from that, too, because I heard staff say, well, you know, I'll be entering a variance every single day. Okay, let's do that, because we don't know how big this problem is unless we're reporting it. And that doesn't, again, it's not a sign of weakness of you. It's not a sign that you're not doing something right. It's also not necessarily that we can fix every one of those situations, but we have to know how big the problem is so that we can figure out how to well, how to address it. And I think there's a halo effect to that mentality uh, from the standpoint of uh, safety and quality of care. Yes. We here at St. Luke's have a culture of it's okay to report problems. It's not you. It's this, you know, my, it yeah. potentially is the system that we can improve. And so we encourage people to report stuff because then you can filter through that and say, mm-hmm. hey, we have this floor is experiencing the same problem. Let's fix it. Right. Uh, and that has a halo effect because it does break down the patient care. Really you does. improve yep. processes and that does improve care overall. So yeah, I think I think we have a good culture when it comes to reporting and speaking up and it's not judgmental. I think so too. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I think um, as people have started to make more of those reports, we have put things in place to support the staff, You know, again, this de-escalation training, I think, has been um, very well received by people. You know, sadly, we live in a world where there's violence happening everywhere, and we no longer sort of feel like that's happening out there. It can't happen here. We know it can happen here. And um, so the, the feedback we get from those classes has been really nice. You know, the other thing we're doing, Dr. Arnold, is... um, kind of follow up with all team members who 
have been assaulted or been a victim of workplace violence. So it's kind of like a, a debriefing, but we want to follow up with them to, one, make sure they're okay physically and emotionally. And do they see pieces that where we could have done something different there? You know, did we follow our process or we did follow the process and here's where it failed? So how do we learn from that so that maybe we can prevent that from happening in the future? Um, like, I I told this nurse before that this was happening, or I reported that, and we didn't give him his PRN med, or whatever that was. If we can learn from those situations, we can start to prevent that. And most importantly, we want to make sure that team member is okay and they get the support they need. Well, and we want to we take this stuff so serious, and we follow up on it. You know, um, that's that's so true. If you could give one piece of advice to patients and visitors and families, what would you give them? What would you tell them? You know, I think a couple of things. The, the easy, the easy answer is just be nice, right? Um, you're coming to a place that has been overwhelmed the last couple of years. Most people know that we're overwhelmed in many ways from a staffing perspective. You know, just our resources have been taxed, and things may not go as smoothly as you want them to go all of the time. And so, really, approaching the nurse and the the doctor and the person checking you in and the housekeeper with with kindness and respect that you would want to be treated with and and have that understanding that it's it's been a challenging few years here in the hospital as well as out in the community and so anything um they can do to just you know be patient communicate your concerns and needs in a respectful way um you know, I think we as team members try really hard to have empathy for our patients who come in and understand that every single person walking through our doors is experiencing some anxiety. And so the patients walking through our doors should also, um, you know, try to keep that in mind that our team members have also been taxed and also been living the last few years through this pandemic. And, you know, if we can approach each other with that kindness and respect, bring back that Iowa nice, yeah. you know, I think that um, it'll go a long ways. Um, so really just a lot of empathy all the way around. I think, you know, the the saying, you never know what somebody else is going through, you know, and I, I've, I've told my daughters this, tell myself this, that, you know, somewhere in your life, you all you said was thank you to a store clerk or some sort of benign day-to-day conversation that you were just kind mm-hmm. at a time when maybe they were going through something really stressful. And that person probably still remembers how you made them feel. Yep. And you had no idea that you yep. did that, but you influenced positively somebody's life. On the flip side of that, you can also influence somebody's life in a negative fashion as well. And so, you know, the golden rule, treat mm-hmm. others as you would, you would want to be treated. It's always good advice. Carol, thanks again for joining us. Your first, but hopefully won't be your last podcast. Once again, uh, joining me today to discuss this important issue is Carol Mead, Director of St. Luke's Behavioral Health Services. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.